Hi, I'm Matt Kierkegaard, and thanks to Crime Malt, this is Beer as a Conversation. This week, we play an interview that Pete recorded with Shia Rubinstein from Urban Alley Brewing. A Baltimore-born, Brooklyn-raised Israeli soldier home brewer marries and settles in Melbourne and finds himself the head brewer in his friend's business venture, a revamped Docklands pub tucked quite literally beneath the Melbourne Star Ferris wheel. While it sounds like the opening to a convoluted Hollywood movie plot, it is in fact the story of Shia Rubinstein from Urban Alley Brewing. The business itself began life as Collins Street Brewing, when Shire's friend Zev Meltzer conceived a plan to open an inner city brew house. The difficulties it presented led to a plan B, where the business contract brewed core beers to enter the market and establish the brand while a suitable site could be sourced close to the city. The Harbour Town Hotel became that site, a large-scale pub on the outer reaches of the Docklands Precinct to the north of the city. A chunk of the existing restaurant area was given over to the brew house, and Pete says that a better example of brew house Tetris would be hard to find, as every square foot of space has been judiciously utilised, even to the point that the low point of the floor and the high point of the ceiling were the only place to stand tanks before shuffling them into place. The grain mill is located in a loading bay some 50 metres walk away next door and linked to the brewery by an auger which snakes its way through the delivery and back of house alleys. In this conversation, Shire is keen to share some of the philosophy behind the brand and the choice of beers, as well as the strong focus on sustainability that they have planned. He also takes care to correct some of the misinformation he says was reported around these practices, some of which are in the planning stages but not yet implemented, and gives listeners some inside goss on upcoming partnerships to further ensure a smaller environmental footprint. Shire is a most interesting character with a rich and diverse background, all of which has led him to his current role. He shares some forthright views and opinions on the brewing scene and is sure to get the conversation started. Enjoy this conversation with Shire Rubinstein. Shire Rubinstein, thank you for joining us on Beer is a Conversation. Thanks, I'm uh, happy to be joining you. Now, we were lucky enough to meet on the stage at, uh, in the director's chairs at Craft Beer College during GABS, and uh, I was well aware of Urban Alley as a brewery, uh, but not so much your story yourself. Tell us about the, the, the Shire Rubenstein story. Yeah, that's okay, it's fair enough. Look, the Shire Rubenstein story as a brewer um, pretty much started with, with Urban Alley. Um, before that, it was just Shire Rubenstein, the home brewer. Um, so basically, uh, I arrived in Australia in January, late January 2014 and was unemployed, um, but uh, I had experience and qualifications as an industrial engineer and uh, really struggled to find a job uh, early on. Actually, it actually took me about eight months to land myself a, a proper job and, you know, with a family with two children at that time, um, yeah, it was just kind of a challenging time to be here in a new place and uh, with, without employment. Um, so to fill in the gaps, yeah. where, where, where had you come from? Yeah, yeah, sure. So I was born and raised on the east coast of the U.S. Uh, in Baltimore. And then I moved to New York when I was uh, about 13 years old. Did the rest of my growing up over there. <laughs> uh, then I lived in Israel for about 10 years. Um, and, uh, but during that time, I had met my wife, who's from here, uh, from Melbourne. And we had gotten married here and then lived in Israel for a while. First two kids were born there. And while I was there, I met a guy uh, named uh, um, 
lady or Levi Freed, who was um, a doctor, a dermatologist, but also a home brewer, and he was just doing fantastic work um, with you know all kinds of beer styles. I had no idea that you could actually put taps into an old fridge and turn it into a, a kegerator. Like it was, just, this was all just you know marvelous to see. Um, when I came here, I contacted him and said, "Look, you know, like just help me start brewing beer because I've got time on my hands." And um, in between job interviews, that's just what I did, and I got stuck into it. And I'm also a like a relatively creative person. I've been playing guitar and um, you know other instruments for about 20 years. So Brooklyn was where you were living in Yeah, as a teenager growing up. And I got exposed to some really interesting beers out there in Brooklyn. But at that time, I had no idea what the importance or significance of that was. You know, one of the biggest um, breweries that were really impactful at that time of my life, I guess, um, was, um, was Magic Hat. Uh, out of New England, yeah, and they had a beer called the Number Nine, which had a lot of flavors, you know, from e- either from peaches or just like peaches, <laughs> but yeah, a lot of stone fruit character, um, and that that kind of blew me away. And then there was also the standards like um, you know Pabst Blue Ribbon, which is not so craft but a good beer, um, and uh, Blue Moon, which uh, you know again to the uneducated, you know, just seemed like a craft beer. So we we kind of got hooked on it, and there was. Um, uh, there's just a lot going on, but not nearly as much as there is today. And, you know, we're talking, wow, this is like in the mid to late 90s, uh, maybe 90, yeah, late 90s, to early 2000s. Yeah, so of course it's blown up a lot since then. But that was really where I got my feet wet when, in terms of other than mainstream beers. Um, and then living in Israel actually was, was fantastic because, because of their proximity to Europe. They have a really good network of, of imports um, import channels with Belgian beers and some other, you know, European, small European beers. But because um, most people, most listeners, I would imagine, would not associate Israel as a a craft beer. They're not. You know. they, well, first of all, though, that's that's growing. Home brewing is really strong there, and um, craft brewing microbreweries are growing in number. Uh, there's a couple of challenges in Israel. First of all, the water quality is very hard in a lot of the places. Um, hard as in hard, hard water? Yeah. yeah, yeah, sorry. Not difficult, but um, just hard water. So, like, you know, high alkalinity or high calcium, things like that. Uh, and that's, that's, that's challenging to work with. In, in contrast, um, here in Melbourne, the water starting out is it's very soft, and it's also very consistent. Um, and we could talk a little bit more about that later, because that actually... Um, is a really big cornerstone of our brewing ethos is uh, the focus on our water. Um, but we'll talk about that a little bit later. Um, so in Israel, the home brewers and the brewers, the commercial brewers, have a big challenge with proper access to, to, in, to a range of, of ingredients. So for example, I know that you know, a lot of them are just using dry yeast and you know, getting you know, fresh liquid yeast into the country there is hard. Um, so there are some breweries there that are doing a really good job. Um, there's some really great macro breweries as well. Uh, but, um, yeah, look, I mean, the, the demand there is also a bit slow, and that's also a big challenge. So my friend, uh, Lady Freed, um, actually eventually just left because he tried opening a brewery in Israel, and it just wasn't working. And now he opened a brewery slash micro bakery um, together with his wife uh, in Los Angeles, uh, in Long Beach, sorry, Long Beach, California. Uh, it's called the Long Beach Beer Lab, and 
they do some fantastic stuff. Mixed fermentations, barrel aging. Yeah, just really, really good stuff. If you're ever in California, uh, in the Long Beach area, and you're looking for a good place to get really good food, sourdough bread, pizzas, and just fantastic beer, you got to check out Long Beach Beer Lab. A couple of years ago at uh, Good Beer Week, uh, Bert, and I'm, I'm going to struggle with his surname, but he's, uh, he's Belgian, and his company is The Beer Baker. So that sounds like a similar oh, yeah. sort of thing where it's very much, it's using the same grain in, in bread on one side and, and yeah. beer on the other. They do some mixed uh, projects as well where um, Levy will make kvass, you know, from leftover bread from the bakery. And it's really one venue, the brewery, the brewery and the bakery, it's one venue. Um, and he'll also sometimes put some sourdough starter into a beer and make a mixed fermentation like that. Um, the funny thing is that they're such good friends of ours and my wife's a baker as well. And although her bakery is not in my brewery, she does have a micro bakery, and that business is actually doing um, like not really well, but it's it's growing. The demand is growing, so they've got we've got really good friends that are doing very similar things to us across across the ocean, and uh, it just so happens that you know we're having it we're, we have it here, and it wasn't planned that way. But well, here's your uh, chance for a free hit, Shire. Uh, you know, a free plug. Where 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 is it, and what's it called? Oh, my wife's bread. Oh, yeah. So it's called uh, Five Grains Bakery. Um, FiveGrainsBakery.com. Um, I think the name might be changing soon. So look out for that. But if you want to follow uh, her um, Instagram, that's probably the best way to find out about where she's doing pop-up sales. And that's, her name is Mariasha. It's an old, uh, like, uh, family Russian name. So it's M for Mary, double A R Y. A-S-H-A, and that's her handle at, on Instagram, Mariasha. So she's often posting when she has a bake or a bake sale. Usually it's like um, Friday mornings, and you have to pre-order between Wednesday, Thursday. Yeah. Our, our listeners are very much sort of, whilst, whilst beer brings them here, yeah. um, and it's interesting you talk about you know the, the, the fact that you play guitar, that you're the creative side, but then you've also got this mechanical engineering, uh, industrial engineering, industrial engineering yeah. Side to you, I think a lot of our listeners can really can really relate to that. It, the, the beer brings them here, but yeah. it's the creativity and everything else yeah. that keeps them coming back. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, there's a bad joke, but I'll say it anyway because I'm a dad. I'm allowed to make bad jokes. Um, they say that my wife and I are fermented. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's not that's not the worst. Out if you want, I'll, I'll leave that up to Joe. Uh, and maybe maybe we can get the listeners to vote on our uh, our Facebook pa- uh, group page. Yeah, how about- bad was that joke. Um, yeah, so there's, there, there is a lot of, um, I guess, you know, advantages to having a relationship with, you know, where, where the partner is also someone who can really be passionate about or is passionate about flavors and aromas. And, I mean, just as an example, my wife actually used our breakfast stout in a, in a bread recently, and it was like a, a seeded rye. And it was just amazing. She used the dark ale as well in a fruit loaf. And all her stuff is sourdough. So even her pastries are sourdough. It's just fantastic stuff. People should check it out. Yeah. And I should point out, before we uh, move on to talking about Urban Alley, the brewery, yeah, sure. uh, that we are, even though it's 9.23 in the morning, or, uh, what is it? 9.53. Yeah. Um, we are enjoying uh, said breakfast out. Yes, we are. Because why not? Yeah. Which leads us nicely into uh, Urban Alley, the brewery. Talk us through how it came about and how your your involvement with it. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, so as I was saying, um, the home brewing had started here about five years ago when I was looking for a job. And I I mentioned before about, you know, engineering and also music. And I, I, the reason that um, 
I highlight that is because a lot of people start brewing beer and then they will quickly just be like, you know, this is a bit a bit too hard or this is more of an investment in time and, and equipment than I thought it would be. The passion will only take me so far. Now, yeah. it's actually, there's a lot of hard work yeah. as well. Yeah, what do they say? Like, that the joke is people start brewing beer because they think it's going to be cheaper. <laughs> um, anyway, so I realized after a couple of batches, I mean, my, my second batch was all grain already. Like, I just jumped into it. And, you know, a lot of it ended up on the floor, <laughs> sticky floors on the kitchen. I quickly moved to the outside, into the garage. And I just was thinking, you know, over the course of the first year when I was brewing and just having such a hard time, but also having a good time, I was trying to figure out what makes this so, like, why do I like this? And I realized that there was such a good balance, such a good mix of science and creativity together. So you get my engineering, but also my music background, and, you know, both sides of those, you know, uh, both, both of those skill sets in me are being u- utilized. And I realized also that I, I just was really intrigued in um, sensory analysis, and I just started diving in. And so around that time, I started bringing my beers around, you know, to friends or, you know, people's homes or whatever. And, and someone said, hey, there's another guy in this, you know, uh, Caulfield, St. Kilda community that um, that we know that is also homebrewing. And I think he wants to make a business out of it. Well, that was Zev Meltzer. And it happened a few times. And then I just kept on forgetting to look him up. And he called me one day out of the blue and said, hey, like, people say we should meet. So he came over. He tried um, some of my beer. I tried some of his beers or uh, one of his beers that was a pilot beer that eventually became the Once Bitter Urban Ale. Um, but at that time, it was really just a pilot beer. It had no name, had nothing. All he had was sort of a business plan and a branding strategy. Like, that's, that's all he had. Um, but he had, like, 10 years of homebrewing behind him, and I had, like, one year, and he's, like, he, he, he tasted my beers, and I tasted his, and we just sort of started talking, and he said, we got to talk more. Like, you know, and that was the beginning. That was the birth of a, of a friendship that right now is a really good working business relationship that, you know, our skills really complement each other. He's got a background in finance and he's really strong with that. And I've got a background in manufacturing, quality control, supply chain management, um, and brewing. And, um, I'm also BJCP certified, so certified beer judge. So the, you know, you know, recipe development and all that is, has also been a really big focus for a few years. So you put these two skill sets together and we found that um, we really complement each other well. So he didn't have a job for me right away. There was no Urban Alley. All there was was an idea. And uh, I said, sure, like, I'll, I'm willing to jump in and help out, you know, but do you have a job for me? And he didn't have a job for me at the time. So there wasn't really much just justification to, for, for me to brew pilot recipes for him or to be working for him regularly. Um, but I had an email address at the moment that he created the brand I had an email address, and I was just, you know, I was there as a mate to help out, and it really wasn't taking up a lot of my time, so I didn't mind. He started brewing the beer, Once Bitter, Urban Ale, by Collins Street Brewing Company because he had a, he was branding it like that because he had a dream to make a brewery on Collins Street. And while that never panned out, um, he did get the beer into a lot of pubs in the city, and that was really what he wanted to do. He wanted to offer a an alternative to you know, some of the more mainstream beers, which was 
going to turn people away from that stigma that craft beer is palate offensive, um, too intrusive, too in, to, too in your face, too bitter, too you know, too hoppy, too malty, too big, too bold, all that kind of stuff. And he wanted to show people that craft beer can do that similar thing for you in a sensory way. Um, it can be refreshing, it can be crisp, it can be clean. Uh, without without doing all the other stuff that it, it can be a beautifully subtly nuanced that's right. Munich Hells, or it can be yeah. a big ass West Coast IPA. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And he wanted to show people that, that it can be like that, and I think he really succeeded because on his own, he, so the beer started to be brewing in Southern Bay, Southern Bay Brewery in Geelong. <clears throat> Excuse me. And um, at that time, uh, there was a guy, Phil Rutchins, who was the head brewer there, who actually, funnily enough, um, in the past uh, six months has moved on from Southern Bay and has uh, moved on to us and is now working as one of our senior brewers. Um, um, essentially helps me run the place, and it's it's fantastic having him on board. Um, and that's also, another, I think, another cool part of the story is, is how really everyone that has been involved in making this brand what it is a success today and, and it is succeeding, even though it's in its infancy still. We're still only less than 12 months old. Um, it's, it's doing well. We're getting a lot of good recognition out in the market. Um, uh, you know, everyone that's been involved since the inception is still here. You know, you get Zeb coming over to me at my house, tasting homebrew, um, finding out that Southern Bay Brewery in Geelong can, can brew beer on contract, and meeting Phil Rutchins and brewing the beer there, getting out on the road and selling it, um, telling me, Shia, maybe one day we'll have a brewery, maybe not, and you know, then it happened and we found this venue and, you know, and now Phil is here as well. So it's just, I, I, I just get, you know, a little bit of a, a chill in my bones whenever I think about how, how lucky we are that what we have going on is a really special place. It's really unique. It's, it's not in the city, but it's still kind of in the heart of Melbourne. It's just outside the city. Um, it's a destination area. You know, you've got the Melbourne Star here. We have a lot of room for hospitality. Um, you know, you can book events here. I think we're licensed up to, up to more than 600 people. You know, and we just have we have this, you know, crazy 25 hectoliter three vessel brew house. You know, packed into like a tiny 110 square meter area. That, you know, still though, it, it, you know, all the people that were there from the very beginning are still here now, and I just find that. Just really special, yeah. So to put, I guess, particularly our uh, listeners who are outside of the Melbourne area yes. uh, into the picture in terms of where we are, we talk about the the, the Melbourne Star, which yeah. is the, um, the the big Ferris wheel in yeah, Docklands. The Ferris wheel that you see on your way in from the airport, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's beautifully lit at night. I must admit, it's it's not nearly as impressive sitting underneath it when the when the lights aren't on. Um, but it's very much uh, the you know the uh, iconic uh, tourist sort of destination and you mentioned uh, that you guys are, are lucky um, and I don't know you know you've only been here 12 months I, I think I'm not, I'm, yeah. you're probably not even aware how lucky you are in that as often happens with um, developers making promises to, to tenants you know there's going to be a thousand people an hour through there's going to be this <laughs> and that and then the first week of opening they discovered a crack in the wheel and it was oh, shut gosh, down yeah. for 18 months or, or nearly yeah. two years. Yeah, so the the Melbourne Star has its own story, just as you said. Um, but along with that comes the story of what used to be called Harbortown, which is now called The District. And we are a part of that, you know, facelift, I guess you can say. So in a nutshell, there used to be really strong wind tunnels in the laneways of... or of the um, 
of this shopping centre here that was built as a retail space. Uh, for those who don't know, it could have been designed by NASA as an aerodynamic wind tunnel testing. Uh, it, was, it was almost as if they had deliberately tried to create the coldest, godforsaken wind tunnel place on Earth. Wow. Had you been here before? Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Well, yeah. I, I, uh, family connection with um, City of Melbourne at the time when Docklands was sort of divided up into seven sections. And I think the biggest mistake that most people now realise they made was they sold off the seven sections at once rather than get one, get it developed, then start on the next one. So for a long while, there were these little pockets of activity, but there was no way to get there. It was, there was sort of like there was a literal gravel car park. It's amazing how much it's changed now. So there was a, a development company, um, property management and development company, and I guess a landlord essentially that took over the... Um, the whole area here um, and renamed it to the district, the district Docklands. Um, and that company, uh, Ash Morgan, they, um, <clears throat> so they're a property group and they, um, once they took it over, they've done a really good job with giving this place a facelift. I mean, you've got um, just a whole bunch of new retail spaces here, H&M, Uniqlo, um, uh, Carl's Jr., that's uh, a burger joint. Uh, you got the Archie Brothers Electric Circus um, for, you know, arcades and bowling and you know, uh, dodging cars, that kind of thing. A um, whole bunch of new cafes and restaurants. And and they put a roof over the laneways in the shopping center, which now have um, really pretty much taken care of that wind tunnel problem. And the place is vibrant now. It's just uh, the Hoyt Cinema. How can I forget that? The Hoyt Cinema that's just upstairs. I think it's the largest cinema in, in the vicinity. Uh, now that um, we're closer to the west than, I guess, the cinema at Crown Casino. So now people from the west side of Melbourne have a, a cinema. You don't have to cross town. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really created a, a, a very vibrant and dynamic sort it of has, yeah. Uh, hub. Yeah, so the history is that th- where we're sitting right now in Urban Alley Brewery is actually what used to be called the Harbour Town Hotel. And the, the story is that um, the, the owner, or the, the partners that had, had or still have ownership of the lease of this of this uh, this tenancy uh, had had it as the Harbortown Hotel. It operated for about eight years and just you know it, it kind of struggled, but just struggled just as much as everything else in this district in this precinct. And along with the plans to put in the Hoyt Cinema and get you know more and more retail spaces and entertainment um, uh, and hospitality venues, they also decided to give an upgrade and decided not to sell you know the lease, but just to keep it going and. Um, it's great that they have because what they did was they um, they got so I think at some point I've got a couple of dots in this timeline a little bit fuzzy but basically um, the one of the partners uh, one of the owners of the lease um, met Zev at some kind of a business conference um, that I think was focusing on focusing on entrepreneurship or, or young leadership or something like that, um, and they got to talking and realized that they um, I think they knew some similar you know, some mutual acquaintances had some mutual acquaintances and I think um, his name is Dean Grant and Dean remembered that you know after a little while oh you know well, Zev Meltzer he sells beer and at that time Zev was really just slinging the kegs on his own. And he was selling upwards of 50 kegs a week of, of this one spitter urban ale all on his own. And was doing so, really so Zev was a part owner he was just, in was urban ale. Sole, Zev was the sole owner of Collins Street Brewing Company at that time. 
And the owner of Harbortown Hotel, which had been shuttered for at least a year because they were planning a renovation, said, all right, I want to renovate my pub, but I'm thinking of putting a brewery in the corner. You know how to sell beer, so you must know how to make beer. And he said, well, I know a guy who knows how to make beer, and um, I think uh, I will uh, give him a call. You know, like I said before, Zev and I were always just, every time we would catch up, it'd be like, man, one day, maybe, you know, in our wildest dreams, maybe we can have a brewery. You know, Shia, you can be the brewer. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, okay, cool, whatever. <laughs> but he said, Shia, can you come down to Docklands today? And I was like, yeah, I actually, at that time I was working just over the bridge in uh, Tottenham. Tottenham, Sunshine, Braybrook, that area. Well. Yeah, uh, in third-party logistics, uh, warehouse management. I popped over here. It was only like 10 or 15 minutes from, of a drive from work. And I walked in here and I saw this place. And it was a dump, I got to tell you. Like, the corner where they were saying you might have a brewery in is... You're looking at it. It's got a drop ceiling, a raised floor, tables and chairs everywhere, dust. I mean, just... It took a lot of imagination. So to put it in the picture, is it where the brewery actually it right. did end up going? Okay. That's right. So when we talk about corner, where and, and it's almost like an L-shaped corner. We, beer reps, I know, uh, often talk about um, uh, beer Tetris, which is where you're, you're loading up your car and you, you, you put everything, all the, all the different slabs, in exactly the right space to, to maximise the space available. This is that to the power of 10. In fact, to the point where I think Phil pointed out to me, there was one spot where the floor was low enough and the ceiling was high enough that you could actually tilt the tanks in and actually get them... One spot. Yeah, yeah. One spot where we were able to get the tanks on their right uh, angle, on the correct angle, to lift them up. And look, there's a a couple of details about this. Number one, I will agree with you. Um, Definitely... It's Tetris. It's engineering Tetris in there. We worked on plans for a long time. I would say that's relative. A long time is relative. But from the moment that I walked in here until the moment that the first tanks were going in was about a year and a half. And throughout that time, we worked nights and weekends, whenever we could, on all kinds of iterations of the floor plan layout, where could equipment possibly go? We initially were going to go for a 10 hectoliter brew house um, with, you know, maybe some 20 hectoliter tanks. That doubled um, fairly, fairly early into the planning, but that also made it difficult in terms of how to get that all um, into, in, into the space. Uh, sorry, actually... It was 10 barrel, U.S. barrel, which is more like a 12 to 14 hectoliter, uh, uh, something like that. Uh, so we ended up with a 25 hectoliter brew house and 50 hectoliter tanks, uh, six of those 50 hectoliter tanks, two 25 hectoliter tanks, of, of, and two uh, brewing liquor tanks for cold water and hot water that are 5,000 liters each. And a, you know, there's glycol reservoir in there, air compressor, water filtration system, there's a couple of mobile pumps, uh, yeast brinks, a, uh, a lab workbench, uh, some hose reels, uh, a steam boiler. I mean, it just keeps on going. I noticed, I noticed there isn't uh, a grain mill. No, the grain mill's on the outside. That was something we had to do as well. So we have a whole grain handling system that is about 30 or 40 meters 
of auger away from the actual um, grist hydration point. Uh, so it's actually in the, in the loading dock. It's in the loading dock, that's right. And that was another engineering project. So there was a lot of things that we put together here that I'm really proud of. Um, and it was together myself, to, uh, together with Zev um, Meltzer and uh, John Gonzalez, um, who has recently rebranded his company to be called Bespoke Brewing Solutions, or uh, BBS. Uh, it used to be called Brewtech, not to be confused with SS Brewtech. That's a totally different company. Um, Brewtech, B-R-E-W-T-E-K. Uh, now they're called Bespoke Brewing Solutions. He is uh, a Texan that lives in China and sells um, Chinese uh, breweries, but he adds that you know uh, Westerner flair to it. And he's able to act as that point of contact that you just, I got to say, is unmatched. And um, I know of... of quite a few other breweries in Australia um, and also other parts of the world, but um, Australia is definitely his biggest market. Um, that uh, Breweries in Australia that either have full turnkey systems from him, just like we do, um, of various sizes and configurations, or they just have a lot of fermentation tanks or other bits of equipment like keg washers, um, uh, yeast brinks, fermenters, you name it. And I got to say, working with John Gonzalez has been fantastic. I could not think of a better um, supplier partner to have been uh, worked with. I mean, the guy literally stayed in my house for 32 days, which was not a bad thing. You might think, oh my gosh, why would you want a house guest for that long? It was initially only planned to be two to three weeks. It ended up being 32 days. That was how long it took to get the install done and the place commissioned because of this the tight space. And it was amazing. It fostered a relationship between not only him and myself, but also with the rest of my family. Um, he got along so well with my wife and kids, you know, that, I mean, I consider him one of my, one of my really good friends today. Um, having him involved as our supplier and commissioning our brewery for us was, was really great. And I continue to work with him on, on a regular basis. Um, and we're also planning to get some more tanks from him pretty soon and eventually expand into some further tenancy here. There's a potential for expansion into another tenancy. I uh, can't talk too much about it yet, but it's not too far from where we're sitting at the moment. And we could fit in um, another handful of, I would say, almost double our current fermentation capacity. That's the plan. Uh, yeah. Uh, I've got to ask. Sure. The industrial engineering... Yes side, did that help you to, I guess, squeeze the brewery into the space that, that was allocated for it? Or was it the fact that you'd never commissioned a brewery before, you didn't really know what you were getting into? Or is it a little bit from column A, a little from column B? It's absolutely both. First of all, I'll just say the industrial engineering background got me the job. <laughs> they took a bit of a punt on me because I had no commercial brewing experience. I was a home brewer. Um, you know, but I guess I just I ticked the right boxes for them. But yeah, the the, the industrial engineering, the focus on in, in that degree actually is a lot more on manufacturing, manufacturing management, engineering management. Um, there is a little bit of um, I remember we did at least one subject on how to place machines in a in a uh, in a production line in a factory but to be fair that was a lot bigger than what we have here uh, <laughs> I guess what I'm getting at now yeah. having done it now oh yeah, yeah but would you would you do it be, would you do it again okay so um, <laughs> we we are planning to do it again 
Absolutely. We would love, and I think it is fair to say there's a good chance we might have more venues one day. But in the words of John Gonzalez, uh, we're never building a tight brewery again, or at least we don't really want to do that. And that's only because, look, I mean, I don't think there's, there's a single, I'll just put a little, a little disclaimer on this. I don't think there's a single brewer out there that doesn't have some regrets about how they've built or designed you know, their operational space. The one oversight that is the most impactful on our operation, our day-to-day operation, was the need for um, moving other stuff in and out of the brewery, like spent grain or kegs or pallets of cans, you know, things like that. That has proved to be a very big challenge. If you know, we used to can in the brewery. We got mobile canning services to come in into the brewery. And I know that your listeners can't see the brewery right now. I cannot <laughs> believe that you canned within, you know the, within the brewery. You know what, Pete? There, there's a fine line between bravery and stupidity. <laughs> and I think you guys would probably fairly say, you, you, you straddled both either side of that line. Yeah, look, we, we don't do it anymore. We don't can in the brewery anymore. So now we can in the pub. Um, it just, it was, it was unsafe. And, you know, I wear many hats here, head brewer, head of quality control. I'm also the head of it, <laughs> um, uh, a few other things, but, um, you know, but, but you want every employee to go home safely. I'm responsible for people's safety in there. I'm responsible for good beer, but, but first and foremost is safety. Yeah. And, and that's, you know, we, we have three pillars we work, we, we operate under and they are in order of priority, safety, quality, and efficiency. I'm never going to prioritize quality over safety, just never. And there was a few times where in order to get from one side of the brewery while we were canning, to get from one side of the brewery to the other, you had to crawl in between fermenters. All it takes is for you know one person to forget that a hose or a clamp is under pressure. If we're swapping from one tank to another in between two products, and you know a little bit of pressure just makes him go, oh! and the hose just clamp just pops off a little bit it just makes him go oh whoops and he jumps back a little bit hits his head on on a a butterfly valve that's you know somewhere else nearby or or on the edge of the conveyor belt of the canning line you know maybe gets knocked out without even realizing it because we can't see and then we can't drag him out properly because you know it's too tight of a space it's just it goes on and on like the risk just outweighs everything else and i said to them after about four times of canning in there. I'm not ready to take responsibility of this ever again. I don't want to can in there anymore. And uh, management agreed with me. So how, how important? How important was it though, in or, in terms of I guess your brewing philosophy and in terms of the integrity of your brand? Because you could have kept the package product coming out of Southern Bay or any number of other contract partners. Why was it so important that you brewed the beer here and then canned it here? Pete, we still can. We still can get it done anywhere else. There's, and there's no shame in that, and there's nothing stopping us from brewing it and packaging it into different formats at larger breweries, which is definitely still on the table whenever we see uh, a sharp increase in demand. It's just that at the moment, we can safely operate a mobile canning line now in the, in the pub, running hoses from the brewery. It's only a few meters away. And... That enables us to have more tight control over our product, 
there's definitely some uh, advantages in marketing there by saying it's all brewed on site. But again, it, it, there's no detriment to, the, to, to to the brand or quality. Bring it somewhere else. But as any as any brewer knows, having it brewed on site, you do have more control. You have more of a say in every step of the way. Um, and as long as we can do that, we're going to try to do that. Um, you know, it's there is also a monetary um, consideration. There is, a, there is a financial impact on brewing the beer somewhere else that when you crunch the numbers, it can sometimes, you know, often even turn out to be more expensive per case, which ends up also hurting the consumers. You know, um, if they're paying more for a beer that they could have paid less for without us having to compromise on quality, why wouldn't I do that? And this is probably a perfect opportunity to step into uh, talk us through the, the, the tap selection, the way that the, the pub side of the because you, you describe this as a brew pub. I would, yeah, but not your typical brew pub. I think um, there's a category for an award at the Indies um, coming up for, I think, you know, best brew pub or something like that. And I think one of the criteria is that 75% or more of the production at the brewery has to be consumed on site. We are not that at all. You walk in here as a punter, you see a brew pub. But we have a 25-hectoliter brewery that looks like a brew pub. What that means, just for reference, is every time we brew, I mean, you can get 6,000 cans, I believe, you know, out of a brew, you know, plus or minus. You got wastage. I mean, you might, you might get some comments here from home brewers or other brewers going, oh, well, I can get more, I can get less. <laughs> but let's just say, look, you know, every time we brew, which could be anywhere between two and six times a week, that's either, that's like 45 kegs worth or like 6,000 cans worth. I mean, that's, that's a lot of beer. That's not brew pub. That's not all being consumed on site. So about 10% of our production is consumed on site, and the rest is out in pubs and bottle shops. We recently got into Dan Murphy's, so we're there. We've been in Liquorland, Victoria. It's about 180 stores, Liquorland, Victoria, for a few months now. Uh, I think actually since about last, maybe this time last year. Are we outside of Victoria at all? Yeah, a little bit, a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Um, if you, Kegstar um, has, uh, sorry, for those who don't know, Kegstar, of course, is a keg hiring or keg leasing service that a lot of breweries use in Australia. It, uh, they have some good um, charts online. You can good visual analytics. We could see with pretty good visibility where any of our kegs have been scanned out to or where they've ended up. So I've seen kegs of ours as far as the. I think North East New South Wales, um, maybe one or two even out in Western Australia. Uh, yeah, it, it, it can happen, sure. But most of it's here in Melbourne or, you know, it's just around Victoria, Yarra Valley region a little bit. Um, and look, the pub scene and the bottle shop scene here in Melbourne is unbelievable. I've only been living in Australia five years, and I keep on getting introduced to just an incredible array of unique venues, you know, local pubs, you know, I love how in Melbourne you have the word hotel attached to like every little corner pub. It's just, it amuses me, but it, it just makes it that much more special in a way when you're coming from, you know, other places in the world like I am. And there's just such a great variety of, you know, pubs, bars, bottle shops. You know, some of them are focused on craft beer. Some of them are not so focused on craft beer, but they're still willing to try different things. And, you know, 
some people say there's like a real estate um, uh, war, like it's a shark tank out there when it comes to, you know, uh, tap handles. And I guess it can be like that. You know, I don't work so much on the sales side, so I can't comment too much, but I do hear about it. And yeah, I mean, it it is increasingly difficult from what I hear for us to get taps, um, you know, in, in different venues. But every now and then on the flip side, one of our sales guys will say, hey guys, we just got four new taps of our urban dark you know in you know this in this neighborhood in the past week and it's just like wow i mean i still get chills every time i hear about someone saying oh i've had your beer and it's good and i liked it i still go nah you're full of shit you're lying (laughs) like you know you don't don't really mean that they put you up to this yeah and like or i'll see reviews of it online and i'll see people saying that you know oh, I just got this at my new local and, and I've just heard of you guys and I've been seeing you around and it's just like, wow, yeah. But anyway, back to... So if only 10% of you, yeah, yeah is being drunk here. through here, who's it's drinking it? Outside. Yeah, who's drinking it? Okay, so that ties into what this place is. We are in a tourist attraction area. We really are. There's a really big influx of families during the um, public holidays and school holidays. There's also a lot of tourists, um, but the big, the most busy times are you know, um, similar to what a lot of other hospitality venues are seeing, I guess, in the city area. And that is, you know, lunch and dinner time during the week. Weekends are pretty packed here. Um, Because quite a few businesses have their corporate headquarters in this side of the city. Yeah, for sure. You get a lot of, first of all, oh my gosh, like December, January, like end of year and New Year's Christmas parties, this place is packed. We get a lot of bookings for for um, to book out the whole venue. We get bookings from you know corporate bookings uh, to do one or two tables. I mean, just I think just over this weekend we had two separate events. Each one of them had six hundred people. Wow! Yeah, yeah, that's that's crazy. Um, during the um, what was it? Uh, the Easter weekend. I think they finished forty kegs over just Easter weekend through the taps or something like it was just something insane yeah, yeah. And, we, and we should point out that at the moment it's not just urban alley beers there is a, a legacy contract so you, you do have some other some other products that you're obliged to have on tap yeah. at the moment we have 24 taps i think we're able to run 15 different products through those 24 taps in various configurations we can split lines we can share lines things like that that's pretty versatile um we do, yeah, so we do have a contract, uh, a legacy contract that's on the venue um, that uh, requires us to put on um, a couple of beers, uh, I, th- I believe it's with CUB. Uh, so we have things like um, uh, four, uh, four, four Pines and Life, um, things like that. Uh, we also have a cider on tap, uh, Pressman Cider. Uh, sorry, don't know who they're with. <laughs> Uh, well, that's part of uh, the Australian Beer Company, so Coca-Cola Amazon. I'm not sure if there's a contract on that one. I think that one's just on offer because people come in asking for a cider. Um, but it's interesting. If you walk in here, you'll actually see a really wide variety of different spirits and you know alcoholic drinks on 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 offer. Um, and you know, I have nothing to do with that. But the idea is that people can you know shouldn't be I guess alienated if they come in here looking for something else. Um, we try to offer, you know, lots of different things. Uh, we also have beer cocktails sometimes. Uh, we had a like, a, like an espresso martini at one point that was on a special that was made with our Urban Dark, that was which is our English brown ale. That was fantastic. Yeah, so um, the taps, look, we have a four core beers. That's the Urban Ale, Urban Lager, Urban Dark, and Urban APA. 
Um, uh, the the Urban Ale is our take on, I guess, uh, something that falls somewhere in between a Kolsch slash British Summer Ale slash Australian Pale Ale. It's got 30% wheat, so it's actually, um, yeah, it's got a, yeah, it really is light, fluffy. Um, it's dry hopped with Saz, which is also a little bit different and unique. Uh, it's a, you know, a noble hop. Um, that doesn't have you know a really strong um, aromatic profile, but it's got just what we need. And um, the lager, urban lager, that's a classic Municalis, um, all Pilsner malt, um, a uh, Oktoberfest lager uh, blend. Uh, and is that very much in mind of, uh, I guess, not scaring the horses? So having something that somebody who comes in, not knowing that it's a pub brewery, but they've been brought along with their friends, or we've just come off the wheel, we come in, we go... I don't see anything that I recognize. I don't see a Carlton Draft. I don't see a Two is New. That's it. And it's really, it's for everyone. Let's face it, continental or European pale lager is the number one selling beer style by volume in the world by far. There's a lot of explanations as to why that might be. One of them that I think really is true is that it is one of the easiest beer styles to drink. It is sessionable, quaffable, drinkable, approachable, <laughs> whatever. Understandable. That's it. You know, the question about, it's a chicken and egg question, you know, what comes first? The fact that people are expecting that to be beer or the fact that they are expecting it to be beer because it's so good. I mean, that's like, we can go on for hours about that and I won't. Um, but, you know, it's also the nickname is, is it's a brewer's beer. At the end of a, of a hard day in the brewery, I really, all I want is a pint of lager. I want that Hellas. And it was inspired by the Weinstefana original Munich Hellas. And I think it really hits the notes in many ways. Uh, Absolute gold standard for me. Oh, good. thank you. Thank you very much. That means a lot to me um, that you know, when people say they like it because I've been working hard on that, um, on that beer. Still am. Always will be. <laughs> Always trying to tweak it a little bit better. Then we've got the, um, the Urban Dark, which is uh, an English brown ale similar to um, Newcastle brown ale. The best way that I can describe it for those who are familiar with English beers uh, is... It falls somewhere in between a Newcastle Brown Ale and a Samuel Smith's Nut Brown Ale. Okay. Yeah, so Samuel Smith's Nut Brown is really nutty. It's, it's a, it even has a, it's a little bit sweet. Um, you really those those toast, toasty sort of notes. Real, yeah, really strong. Uh, um, caramel, um, crystal malt, like English crystal malt notes. Um, especially in the finish from that beer. And... You know, they've branded it as Nut Brown Ale, you know, and it really does ring out as a Nut Brown Ale. And that's Samuel Smith's, um, really full of flavor. Um, but I think a little bit polarizing in some ways. Then you've got the um, Newcastle Brown Ale, which, to me, a little bit watered down. A little bit thin on the palate. But a great beer! Really great beer. And what I was trying to do was find that kind of beer that fits in between. So it's not too polarizing, not too sweet. Uh, not too nutty, not too roasty, not too chocolatey, not too caramelly, but still has a little bit more substance, um, leaving you wanting more. Ten years ago, if you wanted to start, ten years ago, if you wanted to start a craft brewery in Australia, you had to have. There, there was no such thing as a lager. Nobody was nobody was making a lager. You had a, a brown ale. As, as a craft brewery, you mean? Yeah, as a craft brewery. No, yeah. Nobody had lagers. That's really only been in the last five to seven years or so. Really? 10, 15 years ago, you would have had uh, a, a pale ale and yeah. probably an APA. Yeah. Uh, you would have had a, an English-style brown ale, and then you would have had a, a stout or a, a porter, and you would have had an IPA. Or, or a black IPA. <laughs> 
but no, no, such, no such thing. But no, but don't tell. Nobody really wants to admit that they made a black. And no, I'm just kidding. There's a great, I'm just kidding. Just kidding. There's a lot of great black IPAs out there. No hate mail, please. No hate mail. But it's great. It's great to see that English style brown ale coming back, and not the. Uh, we've we've made it an English brown ale, but then we've thrown American hops at it. Yeah, or even the lager, as you mentioned. So that's so you you see that there is a uh, your observation is that there's a comeback in craft lager. Is that right? Yeah, 100%. 100%. Oh, wow, interesting. Um, yeah, like, I've only been here five years, so I, I can't, can't really comment. But um, I think they're, they're saying similar things actually in the States as well. Um, yeah, some really big craft breweries are making lagers. Lagers making a comeback. Um, um, but I think, too, for, to your point, it's that sometimes it's just what you want at the end of a hard day. You don't want to test your palate anymore. No. You don't want to challenge yourself. You just want, you just want to, uh, basically, you want um, the beer equivalent. Of a, of a warm hug. You've, you've, you've had a good day. You've done yeah. really well. Yeah. Here's a reward. Oh, look, honestly, our dark ale, the, the, the brown ale, in Urban Dark, that is my favorite beer that we have in our range. Um, yeah. Uh, it, my, my goal was that it could be something that's refreshing even on a hot summer's day. People see, you know, people drink with their eyes. It's the first thing, if you look at all the sensory things that you can analyze when it comes to the sensory experiences with, with, with drinking a beer. The first thing is the sight. They see, either they see the branding on the shelf or in the catalog or in the fridge or on the tap handles or they see it in the glass. If they see color, they're instantly thinking, and I apologize for all of our blind listeners and you know, you know drinkers, but because you know, I don't want to you know, single them out here, but it, it, when, when you see something dark, you instantly think, oh, or at least many people tell me they do, that's going to be harsh, it's going to be roasty, it's going to be strong, it's going to be a little bit too much for me, not what I want as my first beer, not what I want on a hot summer's day. So it was a really bold move for us to make a dark beer as part of our core range. And there were a few different styles that we threw around, but the English dark brown, brown ale was just, pilot batches was just tasting so good. We went for it. I'm really happy that as a, as a, we had a consensus on it, a management meeting, and, and we went for it. And I'm really happy that we did because I do think we hit the mark there. It is a beer that you can have even on a hot summer's day. Um, even though that color is just a little bit, you know, a little bit polarizing maybe at first, but I always challenge people and I say, just try it. Just try it, you know. And, and I, I, I get people who say, I hate beer. I don't drink beer. I hate beer. Try the dark ale telling me, wow. I didn't think I could like beer. That's delicious. And that really warms my heart when I hear that. Yeah. Now, the other thing before we move on to the last part of our, our chat together, and, yeah. and I, we could really, this could almost be a three-parter. There's so many questions. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I we feel... didn't talk about any of the, of the limited releases that we're doing. Yeah. No, exactly. But let's talk about uh, the venue itself. And I think the, the most fascinating aspect for me was learning that the food side of things. Now, yes. first of all, you have, um, I guess, an advantage. We've got... Carl's Jr. We've got a KFC. Oh, we've so got a Subway around here. Yes, but but there isn't there isn't that pub food offering other than other than here. And I was fascinated to see. Okay, great. They've absolutely nailed in terms of um, a tourist. In terms of being true to, to Melbourne and offering, it, it's got to be genuine. It's got to be legitimate. It's got to be a reason for having the stuff. You don't just put a Palmer on because you know everyone everyone likes Palmers. It's got to be it's got to be good. But then you've also got. This whole kosher uh, restaurant. Talk us through that. Yeah, yeah. So, um, it, it, look, it's no secret that you know Zev and I were both Jewish, um, and we are we're, we're practicing Jews. So, getting kosher food is really hard. For those who aren't familiar, kosher the kosher diet is very restricting. 
Um, so in the States, it's really easy. I mean, you get kosher food, kosher ingredients, kosher products, kosher restaurants, like everywhere in every major city. And look, it's not that bad in Australia, to be honest, but it is, um, it is a little bit challenging. Um, and there's a lot of Jews that are working either in the CBD or near the CBD that just don't have a place to go to bring a client, have a meeting, or even go out on a date night with their partner or out for a birthday with their friends or whatever it is and be able to get fresh beer, uh, you know, and also get good, you know, kosher food. It just doesn't exist. We saw this as an opportunity to, to help, to help out with that. Now, in fairness, it's a really niche market. The demand is small, you know, but it is offering something, um, you know, to those people and, and, you know, and also to us to be able to have, to have, you know, lunch or dinner here with even our friends or family or while we're working. I mean, that's, it's, it's really great. So what we've done is we've put in a, a really, really small, almost like the size of a, of like a a walk-in closet, really, um, you know, um, kitchen inside the main kitchen, uh, getting the kosher authority of Australia, um, on board with it. Uh, well, there's a couple of kosher authorities in Australia. The one that operates out of Melbourne, uh, is called Kosher Australia. Um, they were on board at first, but it presented a lot of challenges. Um, it's, like I said, there's a lot of restrictions. It's hard. And it's a, it's a black and white thing. There's, there isn't like a spectrum really of, you know, how kosher you can be. When it comes to being in the home, yes. I mean, every kosher home or Jewish home, no matter how observant or non-observant they are, is going to have a different level of observance when it comes to the kosher dietary laws. However, when you go out, if there's someone who's really like considering themselves strict with kosher, both in the home and out, if they go out and they see a restaurant that's branded and advertised as kosher certified, it has to be 100% kosher certified above board. There's no sort of a gray area. Well, uh, you can't be a little bit pregnant. Exactly. There's no gray area. You cannot be only a little bit kosher. And I would imagine to offer your uh, your food as a certified kosher thing. So getting them on board as an idea was good, and they were on board, but then it posed a lot of challenges because you're operating what you want to be a kosher kitchen inside a non-kosher kitchen, and that's very challenging. It took us quite a few months. It didn't happen right away, but now it's operating, and it's going well. And we've got um, a very small number of things on the menu, because all we have there really is a deep fryer and some some cold prep space and um, sorry uh, and, a, and a refrigerator and a freezer. So chicken wings, chicken nuggets, and uh, and hot chips. We're working on some other things as well, and and all the beers are certified kosher as well, of course. Um, so it's a little bit challenging to get the demand growing because the menu is small. Um, but the operational space is so small that it's hard to also expand the menu. So we're working on making it a little bit better. It's been a little bit slow to grow, um, but I see a lot of potential there. Yeah. How's the reaction been from the Jewish community? Oh, they're loving it. Um, we're not seeing as fast of a growth in the demand as we expected first. We, we, we kind of thought we would see, we'd see like a surge, but it's been a little bit slow. What we realize is that although there are a lot of Jews in the CBD, it's hard for them to just come out here in the middle of the day. Look, we are a free tram ride away from, 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 the, from the center of the city. We are. We're just near Marvel, uh, Marvel Stadium. It's, it's really close, but it is still a trip for them to come out. It's not a walk around the park uh, or around the, around the block, excuse me. It, it, it is still a bit of a tram ride. And, you know, so we are seeing um, 
a slow growth. I think one of the challenges also is that we can't really justify yet having it open every day. So we have it open only Sundays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays, only from 12 to 3 and 5 to 9. Now, I've memorized that. If you said that 10 times, you'll memorize that. I don't think it's really easy for all of our potential customers to always be remembering, oh, Sunday, Wednesday, and Thursday, 12 to 3 and 5 to 9. <laughs> okay. I think most of them are probably going, oh, when was it open again? Oh, it's not always open. Oh, I can't remember when it's open. Oh, I can't be bothered looking it up. Oh, yeah, if you need a, re a ready reckoner and a slide rule to kind of to work out, you know, is, yeah. is the sun in the right but direction? What we do have going for us is uh, Deliveroo. So Deliveroo, the food delivery service, uh, funnily enough, um, just as a little side note, I mean, the country manager of Deliveroo is actually a really good friend of mine. And when he heard, uh, and he's a Jewish guy, and when he heard that we were doing this, he goes, oh, man, we can get kosher food on Deliveroo available for Jews in the CBD. Perfect. So that has just opened recently, and that's been a really good addition to the kosher food offering um, you know, to, to people who are in this area. Yeah, so that's helping it grow a little bit. Now, the other addition, I guess, to the business is we're soon to see a craft distillery. Yes. Yeah. From us. <laughs> and how are you going to do that is the uh, obvious second part to that question. Yeah, that's the plan. All right, let's dial back a second. So when we were first planning the brewery here, right, we were looking at a 10-barrel or, let's say, 12-heck brewery. Brew house, sorry. Um, when we got approached by uh, someone by the name of um, Greg Ramsey, uh, who is planning a brew, uh, distillery, he is a uh, partner in a brand called... Um, New Zealand Whiskey Collection, and they've got a, number of, a few distilleries that they look after, and this is going to be just another one of theirs, and they are, uh, they were really excited when they heard that just a few meters away from them in the district Docklands, there's a brewery, and they said, aha, okay, why should we put it in a brew house and make our own wash if they can maybe do that? So they approached us about it, and that made us think, oh, hang on, we ran the numbers, and we said, well, if they want this much wash every week, we're going to need a lot more capacity. They want the equivalent of 20,000 liters a week of, of whiskey wash. Now, we are very lucky that they have not opened yet because what we recently figured out is that we don't even have, have enough capacity to make our own beer plus their wash. Um, but, you know, they, um, they're, they're you know, ready to purchase it from us by the liter and... They are uh, running behind schedule. They haven't really started the construction yet. But uh, you know, it, every time we catch up with them, they say, "Yeah, we're you now we're just a couple, little bit of holdups, a little bit of delays, but we're really going ahead." And from from what we understand, also from center management here, they are going to be going ahead. So the idea is um, now right behind me, right where we're sitting, across the laneway here from the brewery is a place called Archie Brothers Electric Circus. And anyone who went to Gab's would be very familiar with Archie Brothers' fine work because they do the uh, Little Creatures House of Fun. Oh, do they? Yeah, they, so they provide the, the basketball and the, the Jenga and all those sorts of things. Oh, that's cool. I did not know that. <laughs> so right behind them, um, in the corner of, I guess, of the in a corner tenancy right across... From those who know, the O'Brien uh, right. Ice Rink... O'Brien Group Arena. It's the head of Winter, Olympic Winter Sports Australia, I believe they're called. Uh, so right across the road from them, on Pearl River Road. Uh, or maybe I should say Pearl River. 
Is that right? Peel. That, that's not too bad for a Brooklyn boy. Yeah. Did I do that all right? Yeah. Is that, is that okay? Yeah. My wife gets really embarrassed by me when I do this. <laughs> that's actually very good. That's, I, I think your Australian is far better than my Brooklyn is. <laughs> Maybe after another be- couple of beers, we can, we, we, we can try. We can go head to head on accents. No, no, let's, go, let's go Glasgow. We'll both try Glasgow next. So, okay, so, so the distillery is going to open up there. Yeah. Uh, and we should just point out, it's, so it's, it's not, uh, it's not a, the, the same uh, landlord or anything like that. It's a, it's a commercial arrangement with, a, with another tenant, uh, a fellow tenant. That's right. Nothing to do with us in terms of the business. It's just, hey, you've got a product that, or you potentially could make a product that we need to make our whiskey, and it will save us a lot of money and space and operation space and operational headache. So the plan is to basically run a pipeline straight from our brewery over the laneway, 20, 30 meters away, straight into their distillery, and uh, pump, pump wash over there. And the way that we are going to do this is, well, we designed our brew house to be able to go straight from the louder tonne. We have a three-vessel brew house, so to go straight from the la- directly from the louder ton to the heat exchange uh, without having to go through the kettle uh, because whiskey wash is basically just fermented. Uh, They're just after raw ethanol, really, aren't they? It's just fermented wort. Um, well, that, the answer to that question, Peter, is really debatable. It depends on which distiller you speak to. Um, then there's distillers and there's blenders and, you know, everyone's got an opinion. And there are those who really care a lot about how the mash, sorry, the wash is produced and the quality of the wort, the quality of the malt, and there are, the, there are those who care less. You know, I can't comment yet really about how much they're going to care about it, but the idea is to get, uh, I think, they only want locally grown um, Australian, or I think locally grown Victorian malt. I think that's the idea. It's part of their, their marketing strategy. And we're going to uh, mash that for them straight from the louder time through the exchange into the fermenters, uh, get it out within, I don't know, 72 hours at, at the most, straight into their, uh, into their distillery. Yeah, and that's the idea. And another really innovative thing that we're, that we're doing uh, or planning to do, uh, this has been covered a little bit in the media, um, but it's not yet in place, is that, you know, I don't, I don't know much about distilling, but I understand that you need to cool down the stills at least twice uh, or basically continuously uh, while, the, uh, this, while the distilling is happening. And to do that, you need a lot of, you need, you need essentially a cold water tank. Uh, so you need, you need heat exchanges and all that. So we have a similar need in the brewery, of course. We, at different times, need hot water or cold water. Well, what we've discovered now is that we can pump over our cold water to cool down their stills, receive it back hot from their heat exchange process, and just pretty much it's, it, everyone's a winner there. They're saving on, you know, there's improvements in efficiency, there's less impact to the environment, less natural resources need to be used. You know, it, Without putting too fine a point on it, you're basically reversing global warming by making both beer and whiskey. And I don't so, wave too high of a flag, but you know, sure. I mean, it's it's. I think it's just this amazing opportunity that we have that just makes what we have going on here, or at least in this in this case, what we plan to have going on here, just that much you know unique. Yeah. I'd be really keen to come back when it's all up and running yes. to see yeah. how much in 
practice it works versus yeah, in theory. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And to, you know, it's a good a good segue from that is you know things that we're planning and aren't in place yet, but we'd love to see <laughs> is um, and, and I, actually I'll take this opportunity to clarify a couple of things that have been spread around in the media but aren't so true. Um, so number one is um, the E6PR uh, or uh, ecological um, you know biodegradable six pack rings um, that we've been using. Um, one thing about them, because this just touches upon sustainability and reducing waste and you know improving on, on efficiencies and all that, which we just sort of touched upon with the distillery. Um, so with the six-pack holders, um, there was a, some stories going around that they're made from spent grain. Uh, from what we understand, it's not true. It's made from grain fiber. Um, and also, there's also a local uh, producer now um, making them uh, biopack. And their product is called Biocane, and they're actually made from a uh, composite of sugarcane and some other materials, but um, also compostable and biodegradable. Um, so, yeah, just to clarify a couple of points on that. Um, there's also, um, there was a story going around in the media when we launched that, uh, well, two stories. One was that we are already recycling our trade waste um, effluent, or basically the wastewater that comes out of our trade trade waste treatment tank um, to be used as irrigation for you know to models and other plants. Look, I'm an engineer. This is an idea. I, I have engineer friends and chemical engineer friends, uh, biochemists friends. I have been looking into this based on suggestions from friends about what, what we can do. It's not in place yet, but it is an idea that we're working on. It's we we put a lot of focus on innovation and sustainability and you know. Brewing is a very heavy, you know, consumer. That is it, absolutely yeah. So that is an idea. We're looking into it, and it, you know, once we confirm that it is doable, it's going to be very easy for us to tap into our trade waste um, pump out. Okay, so that's just one thing I wanted to clarify. Another, and just one more thing as well. Um, there's been stories going around about us that we have. Um, a bio waste recycling facility on site. So just to clarify, uh, the district, Docklands, the shopping center, is planning on putting that in. And we will be contributing to our, uh, either all of, all of or a portion of our spent grain to the uh, food waste. Um, I, people say bio waste, it's just not, not to be confused with human waste. Yeah, yeah. So this is food waste, so, um, you know, like food scraps, uh, coffee grinds, Things like that. So there's a, there's a lot of uh, food retail uh, and hospitality venues here in, in, in this shopping center. And we will be giving our spent grain, either all of it or a portion of it, to the food, food waste recycling plant um, that is being built by the shopping center here on site. Not on, on our brewery. When I say on site, it's here in the shopping center. From that, the products will be, uh, the plan is to get uh, fertilizer which will feed all of our planters in our beer garden out front and the planters, of course, all around the shopping center, and as well as uh, natural gas. That natural gas is planned to supply uh, our steam generator, our steam boiler that heats So you'll effectively buy, buy that back uh, yeah. from, the, from, the, from the center, yeah. from Santa so, so just to clarify, right, not happening yet, but in the planning and I'm really looking forward to seeing that because, I mean, look, I know that people say it's all about marketing. Uh, you know, it, it, there is an, I'll admit there's, an, there's a marketing element to it, but let's face it, when I can walk into, into a conversation and uh, 
people ask us, you know, like, what sets you apart? What are the kind of things that make you really proud of what you do? Look, the beer speaks for itself. The beer is good, sure. But when we can also bring sustainability and environmental impact or reducing environmental, environmental impact into the conversation and talk about full circle um, life cycle production, you know, where our spent grain is, yeah, not only going to feed cows and chickens, but it's also being used as a fuel source to fuel the next beer. I mean, that that's special. I mean, that's 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 a really big thing to be proud of. So we can't be proud of it yet, but we're, we're working on it. And, and I really hope that it happens in the not-too-distant future. And, Shai, that leads us beautifully into our, uh, I guess, the, the, the part where we're going to finish up and let you get back to, to brewing the good stuff. Um, we talk about the brand story. Uh, we talk about, uh, I guess, uh, punters now can, can see through. They have pretty good bullshit meters. They have very good uh, bullshit radars. They, they know when, uh, and I think probably early on, when people first saw Collins Street Brewing, we thought, well, hang on, I know, there's no, there's no brewery in Collins Street. There hasn't yeah. been a, a brewery in the CBD of Melbourne, you know, since the, the gold rush times. Um, so when people, a company starts up, that brand story is very important because at the end of the day, we're none, none of us making anything that the next guy or girl is not making. It's all pretty much beer is beer is beer is beer. Every brewery is a story. Every beer has a story. I mean, we don't have enough time now, but I could tell you stories. Yeah, well, just be careful of trademark infringement there because Beer Matt uses, uh, in his um, corporate uh, beer events, uses every beer has a story. So just, just put a little TM after that. Matt Kierkegaard, the other half of Brews News. Oh, yeah, sure. Sorry. Apologies. Um, yeah. Just, just don't use it in your, uh, you know, advertised literature. No, I don't. I don't think he's copyrighted no, it. I mean, it's something that I hear a lot of brewers say, and it's. Uh, I find it true as well. It's just. It's you know. There's. There are stories behind every beer. There's stories behind every brewery. Um, I think that, and there's nothing that makes one more unique or more special than the other. They're all unique because they're they're unique to that person. It's like a fingerprint. And the more that brewers are given the opportunity to share these stories. And or brewery owners or you know beer brand owners whatever you whatever you want, the more that we're given the opportunity to share these stories and we actually take those opportunities to share, I think that is what makes people more connected to the brand. The story behind this brand is that Collins Street Brewing was the beginning of it, and it was a plan. There was a plan, yes, to put a brewery in Collins Street. It proved pretty early, early on that was not going to be very easy. However, if you look at you know the idea of Wanting to put a brewery in the CBD and the city's laneways, its, its alleyways, you know, the, the, the graffiti, the street art that's in there, it, it, it ties hand in hand with the words urban alley. Yep. Now, we also already had a, um, a beer called Urban Ale, Once Bitter, Urban Ale. The Once Bitter was a bit polarizing in some ways um one of the major distribution networks here uh sorry one of the major uh, liquor liquor retail chains here in australia was very hesitant to take it onto put it onto its shelf with the word bitter on there for the reason being that number one it wasn't a very bitter beer uh, so people who are looking for a bitter beer and get and had it you know look it's only calculated at like 16 ibus you know so not very bitter. It's not about two above Victoria Bitter, which is a brand name, but it's not a bitter. It's actually, it's a lager. Yeah. And listen, the word bitter coming from English bitters is a whole different conversation in and of itself. 
a lot of them are not very bitter. But anyway, <laughs> moving on <laughs> before we get into a, a rabbit hole of discussion of the validi- rabbit hole within a rabbit hole of the validity of beer style names and <laughs> historical <laughs> beer style names. Anyway, um, so back to your question. The um, once bitter was just polarizing for as a name of a product to people that were looking for a bitter beer that um, uh, were potentially not going to get it again, and because it wasn't so bitter, and also for those who didn't want um, a bitter beer, if they saw the word bitter, it would alienate them, and then they just wouldn't buy it at all. So they told us, "Look, this this is not going to work for us. Think of something else." So around the same time that we were really getting close to finalizing the deal on building this brewery. We also were finalizing deals with, um, you know, these, uh, these, uh, this retail chain. And they said to us, you know, you, you got to look about rebranding. And so we were like, all right, it looks like we're not going to have a brewery in the CBD. Definitely not on Collins Street. We had this potential site in Docklands that's going to need a name. The, the flagship beer that's made us where we, where we are today is needing a new name. So Urban Ale, you know, stuck once bitter, we weren't really so you know you know held on to that, so we let that go, and I think it was the right step. And uh, Urban Alley, together Urban Ale, has really just enabled the brand of the brewery and the site as a destination location, um, together with the main uh, or like highest volume product, uh, to sort of be, I guess, uh, synonymous. So people can either say Urban Alley or they can say Urban Ale, and it can work both ways. Um, it, it just, yeah, it just kind of, it, it made sense. And it still also fell in line with, um, with Zev, the founder's vision of, you know, having a brand, a beer brand that's really just closely, uh, you know, connected to that rich laneway culture that exists here in Melbourne. And that sense of place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I also look, I mean, again, New York, tons of laneways and alleys everywhere but there's really something special about the laneways in melbourne um in every neighborhood they're just they've got their own little vibrant energy going on and yeah i I think it's really cool now shall i before i let you go uh we talked a little bit before about how hindsight is 2020 vision and there's lots of things you would you'd do differently and every brewer would, would do something differently as we're recording this and having a chat over a beautiful urban lager there are plenty of people listening to this who are, I guess, in the position that you were 24 months or so ago. They're thinking about opening up a brewery. We've talked a little bit about brand story and how important that the genuineness and the integrity of, of having a real story behind your, your beer is, not just we want to make beer and make money. What advice would you have for those people who are listening who want to start up a brewery? And, and uh, obviously with your experience here, it can, be, it can be don'ts as well as do's. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And look, I'm really glad you asked that question. It's, it's, such a, it's such a big topic that I think a lot of people are scared to ask. A lot of people that are thinking about opening a brewery or thinking about getting involved in the beer industry, they might be home brewers, they might just be beer geeks or really big beer fans, whatever it is. A lot of them are scared to ask, why should I not do it? And there's a lot of different points to touch upon. You know, we talked about, you know, the story being important and sharing the story, being impassioned about the story, sharing it as much as possible. Of course, that's important. You know, we talked about, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, just 
finding the right people to work with and keeping them um, close and keeping them along with you with the journey as much as possible. Um, but How important is that, uh, the business side of things? Like, So you can, you can brew beer and you've, you've got yeah. the IT background, sure, you've got the sure. engineering, yeah. but how important is it to have people who can just look after the day-to-day? Yeah, this, you, you cannot underestimate it. Um, look, I mean, Phil Rutchins has been managing breweries for, I think, 16 years now. Grand Ridge out in Mirby North, uh, 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 Gippsland. Um, fantastic beers. Uh, Southern Bay Brewery. Um, uh, I haven't had any of their beers recently, but as long as he was there, I know the beers coming out of there were of superior quality. Um, you, you know, that's it's just it's unbelievable to be able to have people like that around you. You know, you surround yourself with a good team, and it's it, it, you, you are going to go to go places. Um, the marketing, of course, and and all these things that I'm saying are yeah. There, people can say, yeah, sure, that makes sense. It's kind of obvious. Um, you know, marketing strategy, having a good marketing and branding strategy, you know, it's, it's critical. In the glasses, a lot of these beers look the same. In, on the shelf with the branding, you got to have that on point. And again... Because it's easy for you in this tourist precinct to say, okay, I know who our customers are who are going to buy beer over the bar. But then how do you also well, then you think, translate you think that? You, know. you think you know, and then you learn it. But yeah, go on. Yeah. But then you also, uh, 90% of our production is being sold outside of yeah. uh, the bar. So I, I don't have the chance to say, yeah, I'm shy. I brewed this beer. Let me talk you through how I did it. How do you translate that outside? Well, first of all, I'll just say that whenever the sales guys bring me on the road with them, I do get that opportunity, and it's amazing. Being on the road and seeing the venues, seeing the venue managers, seeing the bartenders, and or even having them come in here, is one of the things that really pushes us along, and that's really important. You got to keep that engaged. One of the pillars of our business. I talk about the pillars of our operation about safety, quality, and efficiency. The pillars of the business. One of the pillars of the business is community, not just brewing community, but like community in general. I mean, we 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 we, we try to be involved in in as much as we can around the the Melbourne or Australian business communities. I mean, so we get you know uh, venue managers in here saying, "Oh my gosh, you know we." Uh, our customers love uh, Amaro, you know, this uh, um, uh, aperitif or digestif, sorry, you know, and we want to make a beer that tastes like that. You know, can we do that? And just being involved in things like that, that's just amazing. But touching upon, just dial it back for a second. You said, why should maybe, why should people maybe think twice about building a brewery or getting involved in planning a brewery or being a commercial brewer? There's a lot of reasons not to. A lot of them might be pretty easy to imagine you know oh there's so much room for potential failures if you've never done it before how could you just go in and risk that especially if it's other people's money how could you put your neck out on the line how could you convince them to put their necks out I'll just say Zev mentioned it to me just yesterday about plans that we have and remember take this into context we're less than a year old he said to me um, you know we have regular regular catch-ups of course and he was talking to me about how we are planning, um, you know, to, to potentially, um, and there's no timeline really for this yet, uh, but, you know, more venues, uh, brew pubs, maybe satellite brew pubs, maybe even some venues that are, you know, focused really on only brewing niche products and core beers will maybe come out of, uh, you know, one of our larger locations, things like that. And, you know, and you look at some other breweries that are out there in Australia. Dude, they've been operating out of the same brewery for the same place five or ten years and still maybe just now thinking about expanding. So you think, oh my gosh, like what kind of arrogance do I need to have 
after not even 12 months of being around, to think already about expanding into another site or multiple sites. And you think right away, oh my gosh, that's just too much too fast. And Zev, you know, in chatting to him, we, we realized, you know, he, he, put, he made a great point. You could have said the same exact thing about where we're sitting right now. There's always reasons to say no. There's always reasons to say, this is too much too fast. I'm not ready for this. Australia's not ready for this. I'm not uh, capable enough. There aren't enough taps around. Yeah, there's not enough taps around. There are so many reasons not to. If you wait around for someone to tap you on the shoulder and say, now is the right time, now you are ready, that won't happen. You'll die wondering. It will not happen. For Zev and I to walk into a place convince people to say, all right, sure, here you go. We're going to spend some money. We're going to go into partnership here. We're going to make this happen. I don't know how to make beer. You better know how to make beer. You better figure this out. And for us to say, yep, yep, sure, we can do that, and then go and spend our nights and weekends outside of you know, our regular business hours to, you know, you know, I mean, the amount of things I had to learn is astronomical. And, you know, brewing is such a small fraction of running a brewery. Making wort is only one thing of it. You're talking about, you know, um, supply chain management, glycol cooling refrigerant management, electricity and wiring and electronics, uh, you know, heat exchanges um, and how many of them you might have in a brewery that might go wrong, uh, pumps failing on you, um, drainage, trade waste. The list goes on and on and on. And if you, on the outset, look at that as a daunting list and say, I'm just not ready, you will never be ready. The only way to know if you're ready or not is to just jump in and see what happens. And, you know, it's not like, if you're thinking about it now, it's not like it's going to happen overnight. But don't be afraid to pick up the phone and call. Don't be afraid to go and find a supplier or a brewer and say, hey, I'm thinking about doing this. Can you help me out? What kind of advice can you give me? Because that's what we had to do. And if we were afraid to pick up the phone and call, we would not be here. And sure, we made mistakes. Of course we made mistakes. We're still making mistakes. You know, I've had to dump beer. I've had to dump packaged beer. And I am not afraid to talk about that. Because we had to do it. And it, it was a huge mistake. And it, it, it's, it's, it's part of learning. And I just feel like I cannot drive home that, that, that point enough. If you're afraid to pick up the phone, if you're afraid to knock on the door, if you are afraid to jump in and see what happens... It, you'll always be afraid and no one is going to come along and just hold your hand for you and show you what to do especially if you're you know totally new to the game so it just takes a certain amount of arrogance but you know well-placed arrogance to just knock on people's door respectfully and say hey like, like you know I want to do this what advice can you offer me and yeah you will get burnt along the way and you will find people that will be trying to take advantage of you but if, you know, if you've got half a brain, you'll be able to weed them out quickly and, you know, just maneuver around them and say, you know what, thanks for the advice, but I'm going to move on. Thank you. Yeah. So that's just what I can say about it. I think probably the, uh, the Australian motor racing legend Peter Brock, the late Peter Brock, uh, probably summed it up best. Um, 
bite off more than you can chew, but then chew like hell. <laughs> I like that one. Yeah, yeah. Shai, thank you very much for uh, spending a bit of uh, your very valuable brew day. And um, on behalf of all our Brews News listeners, um, thank you very much for joining us on Beer is Conversation and uh, good luck with the future. Yeah, uh, thanks so much. And thank you for having me. And I'll just, I'll just finish up with saying that come to the brewery. Come see the place. You know, if, if, if you're hearing this and you can come during the week, during some, you know, semi-normal working hours that I'm here, um, come in, go to the bar and say, hey... Shia told me... Oh. I, heard, I heard you on Beer is a Conversation. Yeah, on Beer is a Conversation on the Brews News podcast. And he said that he would, you know, he, he would shout me a beer and, and, and I'll do that. You come in here and, and I would love to share some of my beer with you. And um, I want to close off by saying also just a, a big thank you to, 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 of course, to you and to the rest of the industry and also to the brewing community, uh, to, to consumers. I mean, the welcome we have received here in Melbourne... Um, as a brand has been fantastic. The welcome that I have received into the commercial brewing industry, just from being a home brewer, less than a year ago I was brewing on 50 liter buckets. Now it's, you know, two and a half thousand liters at a time, That like five, six times a week. Like the welcome that I have received has been so warm and open and I, I really just, yeah, I want to show a lot of uh, appreciation and you know uh, gratitude towards everyone uh, for that. So. Uh, please come down to the brewery, and, and thanks again for having me. Yeah. And right back at you, brother. Cheers, Shia. Thanks for joining us again on Beer is a Conversation. Cheers. Don't forget, if you like what we do at Radio Brews News, you can help us out in a number of ways. You can sponsor the show, either by a small monthly contribution or through a one-off donation. You can find details in the show notes. You can review our podcast on iTunes or your favourite podcasting service. Let us know what you think and help others discover the show. Finally, you can tell us directly what you think by sending an email to producer at brewsnews.com.au. All letters received will receive a Brews News bottle opener. And thanks to our good friends at Beer Cartel, the letter of the week will receive a mixed six-pack of Australian craft beer. When Brews News cast and crew are buying online, we buy at Beer Cartel. We love hearing your thoughts on the stories we cover because beer is a conversation.